Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Pop quiz, rom criminals. Name the place where tonight's rom crime took place and is the location of where Avern and Vanya very first met. First met, not very first met. I'll tell you, because I know. It's St. Mark's Church, where our amazing rom crime starts tonight. Hi, I'm Avrin, and I am the crime, and this is Rom Crime. This is our true crime comedy podcast that has romantic CD-ROMs. CD-ROMs. Do you even know what a CD-ROM is? I'm guessing some people listening do not. I know. I feel like I even vague, I really only vaguely remember exactly what a Mm CD-ROM is. Well, I mean, you know, it's where, well, in this case, in this rom crime case, I haven't been drinking. I mean, I might've had one. Um, Rom rom crime case. In this rom crime case, it has to do with video games. So Mm -hmm. CD-ROMs were all the data. It's just data on a CD. Oh, okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Also, before we dig into it, we'll do our usual, you know, what's up with you type stuff. But shout out to Shane Glass, who is a dear, dear friend and uh, listener of this podcast who actually sent us this story, suggested it. I had heard about it and I think even read the big article in Vanity Fair before, but it had been years and years. And so thank you for bringing this back to my attention and into the rom-com world. Well, in the questions, people, we love Yes, thank you, Shane, and yes, we encourage it. Um, I will say, I did my first show at St. Mark's, I think like a year after that half, this this rom-com that we're gonna talk about happened. And I don't know why I didn't hear about it. I just remember being really jealous because it was this, St. Mark's is this beautiful rectory where like a couple famous people are like um, buried. So there's, no, there's, 
sam it's like mini cemetery mini but there's also a theater in that space um mm. but i just remember being so so jealous of the people who lived in there's like a garden yes i was just jealous well i live in a shitty apartment up in you know <laughs> Far, 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 away. far away from the East Village where everything fun was happening. Mm -hmm. Same here. I too feel like the St. Mark's Church, which had many iterations in terms of like what the theater there was called in right. my time getting to, you know, be a part of that beautiful place. Mm -hmm. But that was like from the very beginning, my roommate, Teresa, that Teresa, I moved to New York. I love you. I'm going to be shout out Central, guys, because we're going to talk all about New York. <laughs> and we love it so much, and we miss everybody so much. And guys, um, we're on like day 16 of quarantine or whatever it yeah. is. We're also batshit bat crazy now. Stay home. Some, I really am, but it's okay. We all are. It's, it's, starting, to, it's starting to feel weird. You know, you know, and not like kind of fun. Ooh, this is different weird. No, like, no, like a weird. cute like hurricane weekend in like a really... Yeah kind of crazy which i know hurricanes aren't cute for everybody but um they were in new right. york it was cuter for us <laughs> than some hurricanes are so cute and chic in new york I said, I said pandemics and outbreaks are not so no, no. and they, like we were saying before it's strong exactly it's like it they come in waves it's like in one section in one moment it's fine everything's fine and then in one moment i'm just giving in to the crazy i've been yeah. wearing a sports bra i cleaned it but I'm not even wearing real bars, bras anymore because I just don't care. I need to be like comfortable. I got yoga pants on. I basically am wearing workout gear 24-7. Yeah, I've been living in this onesie that's technically not pajamas, but basically feels mm. like pajamas. But like I tried and it I makes like me that. feel really good because I'm super comfortable, but it doesn't necessarily look like I'm just in my pajamas. Well, I wish I could wear onesies because I have a really long torso and I always get like the up the front. Oh yeah. So, that can yeah. be rough. I usually it's find rough. that you got to get like the bigger, you have to just kind of go up a size or two and be yeah. like, this is a baggy onesie. That's a good idea. I also have meant to be comfortable. <laughs> I love that. I have the opposite of body dysmorphia when, where I actually, I think I'm smaller than I am. And when I, like, I swear to God, every time I'm like that dryer is just running hot, man. It's running <laughs> hot. I, and I, I like dryer and I yell at my husband. I'm like, did you, did you dry this? Because these cannot be dried. But also, it's just because I'm um, eating a lot. And you know what? It's okay. It's oddly I've been working out a lot too. But. Which is awesome. That is like, well, got to look at the positives of all of this weirdness that we're in. I will say that I found, I woke up this morning and wasn't feeling fine. You know, I was like, right. this is just the world is strange and I don't know what to do anymore and I don't know how to make anything work that I'm supposed to be doing to survive this yeah. and it doesn't seem to be working um I'm just talking about you know websites for government things that you're supposed to contact in these scary times they just I can't seem to make it and you know work. what's crazy the same uh, website which yes there are a bajillion amount of more people but when you go on maternity leave you have to actually go to that same website and it's absolutely just as hard I had mental breakdowns I had so much stress after having a baby because you can't apply for anything until the baby is born. And then it takes a years for anything to happen. It's crazy. And then you get like your own little debit card. It's, in, it's just all the things that everyone's going to have to deal with now, but all at once. Um, yeah. So I yeah, no, And not... shout out to anybody who works for the unemployment agencies all across this country and really the world, let's be honest, because mm -hmm. their job's never easy to begin with. And now it's like the number of people trying to utilize this is grown, you know, 
exponentially. exponentially. And I don't know that the number of hires or people working there has grown as exponentially. Probably, you're right. If you're hiring, I maybe could be good at that. I don't know. You'd be I'm good. nice. You would be my favorite. I can favorite. chat on the phone. Oh, I'd love you. Or, oh my God, if you were at the DMV, I would love you so hard. Oh God. I mean, that would be so, <laughs> that you so would hard. Do that, but. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I, I've been to the DMV a lot since moving to California and having to get all that, you know, situated and drive right. again. But it is like the place where happiness goes to die. You can feel it when you walk in. And so I don't blame those employees for moving the way they do and taking breaks like every 10 minutes. They just need to get outside and let the sunshine in a little. It's true. Maybe, you know what, you know, be cool. Hmm. Um, Okay. This is a calling to any like designers, interior designers, or like architects who want to do something good for this world, something cool. Go in and remodel a fucking DMV where there's light and like, it just makes people happier. I bet you it'd be the best DMV experience in the world. Yeah. Feng shui that bitch. Get in there. Change the lighting. Make the lighting good. You also get your driver's license photo taken there. That's true. Hire a professional photographer. I don't know. Don't take breaks every 10 minutes. You the know, lines will move them. faster. That's true. Um, and then automate some shit. So everyone just like get, get on the automation. But I don't know why I'm complaining about the DMV right now because what, you know what I really want to complain about? What? Okay. I need help, everybody. I don't get the deal with the TP. I don't get the deal with the toilet paper. I don't understand. It's ca- this, I think the toilet paper is honestly causing me more anxiety than any of Anything. it all. Like well, being home a- with my kids. You have a small child that, you know, like the concept of going to the bathroom is something that, you know, you're still working on. So you need all the tools at your disposal, all of them. That's true. But on the other end of that coin, which there are many like ends for me, because I'm a very multifaceted human being, but I like a certain kind of toilet paper. Okay, guys, I don't like it to be too soft where there's like stuff coming off on my hoo-ha. I don't want it to be too hard because then it like abrasive to my hoo-ha. I want oh, it to yeah. just be just right. I call it the Goldilocks toilet paper effect. So what I want is the <laughs> What's the brand? The Maybe brand I'll I want, send you some. I want Kirkland. The Kirkland brand oh. is my favorite. Is that it's Costco? My, it's Costco, yeah. And here's the thing. I was looking, honestly, I sent my husband out to Costco today. I honestly would take just like one of the multis. Nothing. There's no toilet paper. There's no toilet paper anyway. The only paper, toilet paper you can find is the one that you get, Av. I was going to say, Vaughn, beggars can't be choosers know, in these I times. I have taken to walking down the street to the local liquor store, yep. which has toilet paper, yes, but they will only sell one roll per customer yeah. per day. And they're like serious about it. And I like that, which is why they're the only place that still has toilet paper. But it is that. How much are they charging? I think like three bucks, $2.99. So they're not like price gouging. They just won't let you buy a lot because as the woman behind the counter explained to me, well, for what you're getting. Exactly. (laughs) In these days, this like time where no one can find it, it's that, I mean, she could charge me 10 bucks and I'd pay it. So Mm you got to have toilet paper or a bidet. You know, get well, with it, America. Uh, you know, if anyone's had a child out there from their vagina, one thing you get after that is you get these little, like, squirt, squeeze bottles. And it, you know, because you have to, like, your, your hoo-ha hurts, it's swollen. It heals real nice. Oh, right. Yeah. You, I guess so you I have a really couple wet. of those still because I just had a baby two years ago. Whenever I was only two years ago, I can't throw things away. But anyways, I have these things. And I'm like, I'd rather do that than have some sandpaper rubbing on my juke. 
Yeah, I mean, it's like the single ply. It yeah, it feels like very thin, whispery, weak paper, and it's not even the same color as the other toilet paper. It's kind it's of like gray. gray. Yeah, I know. What and doing. I have um, three rolls of that though, stockpiled <laughs> in my bathroom. Everyone, so be jealous. I got three whole rolls of toilet paper. Well, so I go to eBay just looking for the Kirkland because I was like, that's what I like. I can't find it. People are selling it for forty five dollars for just a small roll, you know, the small package with $30 shipping. And I just feel like if, if I believe in anything this day to day, I believe in, in police action against those folks because that's karma is a bitch yeah. and you're going to have some horrible, those people are going to have some like horrible poop related incident yeah. happen to them in I their hope life. So. And if you guys, if one of our listeners hoarded some Kirkland, Guys, I'll forgive you if you send me some. I'll send just DM me and I'll give you my address because I just need one roll. God, yeah, I just need one. I'm so God. sorry, Vaughn. No, it's sorry. I'm fine. We have, I have toilet paper that will last us two weeks, and then we're gonna start getting the onesies. I have some, you know, we have some baby wipes, but like I need those for my baby's ass that I don't want to potty train right now. Because you don't want to do that stressful thing during this crazy well, time. I tried on Sunday and it almost broke up our marriage, so we had to. Rewind. Yeah. Rewind. <laughs> one one insane experience at a time, I think, is the way to go right now. You know? I swear to God. Figure I'm out just... how to get through a pandemic together as a family. And then after you do that, you can work on potty training. I know. I know. I also tried to clean up the closet that day, too. So I think I was, I was operating very manic. <laughs> We're all okay. Everything's fine. As you can see, my daughter's doing her artwork behind. Oh, sorry. You can't see. But if you watch the video, here it is. Okay. Um, so whatever, let's get into this. Sorry about the toilet paper rundown. It's, it's okay. Everybody's feel, feeling it so strongly, but that's it's, the thing that's breaking me. That is toilet paper is breaking me. That is what upsets me. It's not essential, I guess. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's slightly essential. The places that sell toilet paper are the only places still open. That's true. Other okay. So hot, one more hot. thing before we go on, cause I know Avrin, you're shy to talk about this, but speaking of essential, since Avrin lost her job on this, uh, you know, this stay-at-home, shelter-in-place, whatever situation, I was, I'm forcing her to do a, um, well, not forcing, but we worked We're together, getting creative. We were, creative. We're, we're spitballing ideas of how to make money. And thank yeah. you, Vanya. You're right. I'm always like, well, I don't want to know. No, I'm like, you got to do it. And so she, she's created, well, I guess I could let you tell it. Well, I basically just, um, I was kind of reading some things that people were doing in this specific industry. You know, it's a tip-based industry. So even if you talk about, yes, I'm a bartender, yeah. as is my husband. So a neither damn husband. good one. She's a damn Thank good Thank you. One. I actually do think I'm a really good bartender. Best margarita I've ever had. And I am, I'm um, honest, as a, as, as a bartender for nine years, I, hands down, best, I would, I would drink it any, I have it for breakfast. Yeah. I mean, I might start. <laughs> <laughs> not like I got a job to go to. But um, yeah, so Vanya and I were spitballing ideas of, you know, like, how can I, I don't know, figure out a way to offer my services, which yeah. normally is a face-to-face, in-person interaction in a time when uh, I'm not allowed to interact with anybody face-to-face and right. nobody's allowed to go to a bar. And, you know, how do you like bridge that gap? And so we kind of spitballed some ideas and we came up with a way to be kind of a virtual bartender yeah, and for the yeah. price of a cocktail um you get to hang out with this this gal this local bartender who is going to show you how to basically make your own drinks right now while that's the only way you can have a drink yeah. and um 
I, hopefully they're fun and entertaining enough to be worth the price. They are going to be fun and entertaining. Um, we will add a little link, but right now, if you guys want a classic cocktail um, demo from our one and only Avrin Mackey, Venmo at Avrin dash Mackey. That's A V E R Y N dash M A C K E Y on Venmo. Right. Put your email in the description and then she will email you the uh, demo back. So yeah because it's super fun and i love it and we'll keep them coming if people if people take to them that's right yeah all right so talking about alcoholics talk about these people who killed themselves so let's, oh, let's, let's, let's get into the story yeah. of jeremy blake and Teresa duncan and i think just for starters yeah. uh 99% of the information that you're going to get from both Vanya and I, even though we yeah. researched separately and even gave each other separate tasks to research, yeah. came from the Vanity Fair article, The Golden Suicides, which was written by Nancy Jo Sales. And she does have a uh, personal connection to the story. We'll save that for a little bit, but it's really that well written, crazy. It's incredibly detailed, and it goes to show what a small world New York City is, and it's like my favorite place in the world. Um, all right, so how do you want to do this, Vaughn? You want to jump in with some background stuff on Teresa? Do we want to start at kind of the end and work backwards? Let's start at the end and work backwards. If you okay. want to talk about what happened, we can work backwards. Okay, so um, this is a couple that was madly, desperately in love. They had been together for 12 years. They had met uh, in, uh, in when they were living in New York City, I believe in 1994, mm -hmm. and um, had moved out to Los Angeles in 2000 or 2002. To yeah, they were both, you know, artists. Um, she, as Vanya mentioned earlier, CD-ROMs. She was like huge in the gaming world. She yeah. came up with three different um, games that were like huge hits with girl gamers. Yeah, so which is like kind of not done back then. Like all the video games were just like targeted towards dudes, boys and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah she came up with three in the late 90s. One was called Chop Suey, one was called Smarty, and one was called Zero Zero. That's Teresa Duncan. Yes. So she was kind of a rock star in her field. And oh, um, cool. yeah, which is awesome. And Jeremy um, Blake, the, her boyfriend, he was an artist. He was kind of a digital media artist. So he kind of described, hold on, I'm going to read what I wrote down about how he described. He would use digital projections that were neither photographs or paintings, but he called them time-based paintings. They were almost like film, like a painting, mm. like live action painting. So very digital, uh, very, it sounds complicated for someone like me who can <laughs> on, but was amazing. And he was also um, kind of a big deal in his field and they yeah. worked together a lot. They collaborated. So they moved out to Los Angeles to, she had written a script for a movie called Alice Underground and she'd gotten some pretty good, made some pretty good headway with it. So they moved out to LA to try to get this movie made. And uh, it was, you know, Hollywood ain't easy, baby, yeah. it turns out. So everything that they had kind of felt like they had come so easy to them in the art world, in the gaming world in New York City. Hollywood was not um, as easy to navigate. It was not yeah. as welcoming. And uh, right around the same time, they'd been here for a couple of years, not finding the success that they had been. I mean, they were still successful, but not being able to get this movie made, they both started to ex um, exhibit kind of strange behavior. They seemed increasingly paranoid, convinced that somebody or some entity was sabotaging them, was making it, that was the reason her film wasn't being made. They felt like they were being watched. They um, eventually 
uh, planned on suing the search of uh, the search, the church of Scientology. Right. And they named a bunch of famous people. And I think I will come back to that when we get, when we're going chronologically. So they decided in 2007, January of 2007 to get the hell out of LA and move back to New York city where they managed to get the apartment in the rectory of the St. Mark's church, which is just the coolest place you could ever get to live. Um, I don't actually think anyone can live there anymore. Oh, really? Maybe because of this. Oh, that I could, could be, be wrong. Well, There's we have several friends who could totally let us know if we're wrong. Yeah, Sam, let us know. We had yeah, we Teresa, had, let us know. Oh yeah. Well, so the the apartment they had, they had a three bedroom in this place, which is like gorgeous, for five thousand dollars in two thousand seven. So that's a lot of money. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a lot. That's a lot of money even now for like. But for a three bedroom apartment in, guess so, in New right. York City in Manhattan, I actually was like, that's yeah, kind of a right. deal. At least yeah. it wasn't like a studio for five that's, grand. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. I think I just like constantly am on the jelly side because I'm like, God damn it. This well, I know. Anyone who gets to live in, you know, all the best places in the world, you gotta be a little jealous In the late nineties they were living in like Broom Street, which is funny because I used to work on Broom Street down in Soho. Yeah. And oh my gosh. I know they were you could just I, I could visualize this. I could do. They were the coolest people. Yeah, they were like. Lisa was like gorgeous. She's originally from Detroit, and just like, but like, you know, beautiful blonde. Um, always like kind of followed the punk scene, but like wanted, but like she she made. I read something like she made some jokes about like the girls who follow, and they just be all frumpy in the back, but she would be like all like you know sassy, cute little sparkly like hot bottom pot, whatever. So she was like, she always wanted to be famous. Yes. And she- Hot bottoms? Hot pants. Hot pants. Not hot pants, but hot shorts. Glittery, glittery booty shorts. And apparently I also, I know what we got this from, as we mentioned before, pretty much the same article, but she was one of those just uber confident people that radiated like- confidence and energy. And one of the things that um, people were, would say about her back in the time period, right around when she and Jeremy Blake met was that if she found you to be boring while you were talking to her or say she thought you were being condescending. Or like a band that was boring. Yeah. She would just pull out her compact, like while you were trying to talk to her and just slowly apply lipstick until you'd walk away. And (laughs) so I was, I was like, love you lady. I know. I mean, I'm sure I would have thought she was a big old see I mean, if she did it to me, I would have been like, that was really I'd be like, I'm the funniest person alive. How could you not? Why would you you put lipstick on while I was talking to you? Or I'd be like, you you know, whatever. I try to put it on too. Be like, can I I borrow some of that? (laughs) So um, they go back to New York in 2007. Mm -hmm. Um, Most most of their friends had noticed a drastic shift in the couple who had been very outgoing, successful you know, just the kind of people that you want to surround yourself with and they're artists and they're interesting. And they had kind of spiraled into this paranoid, potentially delusional headspace where they really were convinced that the world was out to get them. So they left LA where they felt they were being watched, monitored and, and personally attacked by the church of Scientology, moved back to New York and things did seem to get better for a while. Uh, Jeremy went back to work. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's the same company that does um, Grand Theft Auto. Rockstar. Rockstar, yeah. So he went back. He had worked there 10 years earlier. He got a job there. He was working on a show. Teresa was really into um, 
like resetting up shop in their beautiful new apartment. They say that she was always out and about coming home, like buying flowers. She bought all kinds of cool, you know, shit to decorate her apartment. And they seem to be kind of getting back on track. I feel like she would have been the person I wanted to be when I was in my 20s. And I would look at somebody like that who was just always wearing cool clothes, looked beautiful. When you walk into their apartment, tons of books, everything was like kind of eclectic. I mean, she bought like a tin cuckoo clock that would chime. I mean, this to me is this romantic idea of what living in New York and downtown would be. Right. Like being the cool downtown New York couple that they would make like an HBO show about is pretty much what it sounds like these two were. And which is part of why this is such a tragic story because they seem to be getting a little bit better. However, when they got back to New York, another thing that happened is the, um, the father for the St. Mark's church became a good friend of theirs. And his name is, um, he's father. I think, hold on. I wrote it down. Frank Morales. Yeah. Episcopal, Episcopal priest and activist and conspiracy and, and conspiracy theorist. So he was really big into the whole like nine 11 conspiracy. Right. Right. And, um, they would stay up. The couple would stay up with him like all night, just drinking and smoking and talking theories and conspiracy theories and the government and all of the lies. And so a little bit of that delusional paranoia that had started in Los Angeles, it was still a kind of really, really, really building. And uh, one of the things that made all this so surprising is so the St. Mark's church and anyone who doesn't know what the St. Mark's church is, do some research. It is first of all, beautiful. It's historic. Mm -hmm. It has been home to so many artists and you know visionaries and important people and um it was a very important place to me and and to vanya yeah that's right we did our first show i did one of my first shows there and you and i did one together that was called aviary yes that's where we really met i mean we had met once before twice but never really didn't know each other yet and then we did a play at saint mark's church which by the way we um there were like maybe four to six Long, it was a huge space, very tall. Used to be a space, same space as the ontological theater, and like also a dance company was in there. Mm-hmm. And there were, sorry, four to six poles where we learned how to pole dance. We took six months before this show to learn how to pole dance, and I swear to God, my arms are still really strong from it. Oh, mine are. Shout not. out to Seraphine Naomi. What's That's that? right. That was the probably the most upper body strength I have or ever will have. Yeah. I could, yeah, I could not, I don't think I can do a push-up at this point, but as I a, was climbing up a pole. You were. A pole 10 years ago. And honestly, as a physically, you know, active person, it was, there were times where I wanted to cry in our training, but whatever, we made this really cool show. And I felt so like, it really, just being in that space, it had like a haunting, weird vibe to it too. It was like beautiful. It was fun, like getting ready before the show, but even everything was crazy. It was just like, just like so much history in New York in that area. It's a place that is alive. When you walk in, it's, it's the space itself is alive. Something is, something's. Yeah. He said, says his ghost haunts the the place, Edgar Allan Mm -hmm. Poe, which is, I mean, that's a good one if you're going to get a ghost. And Houdini, I think. Yeah. So it's just a magical place with really, really big, beautiful energy, but it is also pretty much all, it's a church. So that's, you know, a not-for-profit type situation. And then a lot of the things that take place inside of it, outside of a church, is is an art space, which are also, you know, notoriously ginormous moneymakers. So 
Teresa got incredibly involved in planning this huge fundraiser that was going to be over the 4th of July for, um, for the ontological. And she oh, was, was it? Super, or not the ontological, sorry, for the St. Mark's church. Oh, okay. But, um, and it was, she was super excited, super into it, reaching out to everybody. And then about a week before the actual fundraiser was to happen, she started acting very strange and sending out really like really snippy, rude um, emails to everyone involved. Uh, Father Frank noticed that she was now actively going out of her way when she would come home. If he was outside in the garden, she would like walk all the way around to the other entrance and not through which would have been faster, easier, and prettier, um, to avoid seeing him. So she was kind of withdrawing. And then to everyone's surprise, when the, the night of the fundraiser um, was a huge success, they raised over $12,000 for the church. But Teresa and Jeremy stayed in their apartment and didn't come down while something like, I don't know, hundreds if not thousands of people were like celebrating below. And she was responsible for, in large part, for making it happen. Mm. So she was exhibiting some odd behavior. And then since, since you did the bulk of the Teresa research, why don't you take it from there? Um, well, okay, yes. Yeah. So Teresa, um, she was born in 1966, um, uh, an American video game designer, blogger, filmmaker, and critic. I know we talked about that, but I'm just, it's what I wrote in Mommy's Little Tipsy. So here we go. Um, so in 2000, she created the History of Glamour, which was a digitally am- animated long, uh, hour-long video and it was included in the Whitney Biennial. So she, anyway, she was like, she was up and coming in all that way. She was an influencer before that was a thing. That's actually true. So, but even more so, more importantly, she was a blogger, which now, you know, back then people would get like sort of notoriety. And I, uh, she, only, she wanted to be famous. She wanted to be famous so bad. And anyways, she, um, <clears throat> at her blog, Teresa listed her interest as film, philology which uh, means it's the study of literary literary texts as well as oral and written records anyways that's one thing philology philology it's so it's the it's basically language it's but it's written texts also oral texts and the establishment of their authenticity and their original form and the determination of their meaning anyway she's so i'll read off a couple other things that were her interests in her blog bio But it makes her, like, she definitely wanted to seem, or maybe she was, and she was very, very smart. Um, I know, apparently she had, like, a bit of an up, uh, uh, rough upbringing, maybe not so great stuff with men happened when she was younger. She never finished college, but yet she, you know, she worked it. Having, like, a video game, I'm like, uh, you gotta be smart for that. Yeah. Okay, the other things on her... Uh, in you know, like I'm interested in on her on her blog was the Vietnam Vietnam War memorabilia, rare and discontinued perfume. I mean, are you cool? I can uh, I could get into that. I guess yeah, absolutely. Discontinued perfume. That's my interest. Again, with my romantic like wishing I could have this like apartment. Book collecting was one. Philately, which is the study of postage stamps and their history. Philately, philately. Philology and philately. Maybe she liked alliteration. Maybe she did. Well, I think she did. Card and coin tricks. And she liked futurism, which is, uh, was an artistic and social movement in like Italy. Basically like people who were super into modern stuff. It's like, let's get those rockets going. And I don't know, whatever. Okay, fine. Great. Emphasizing speed, technology, violence, and objects as cars, airplanes, and the industrial city. 
she was also obsessed with Napoleon Bonaparte's penis. So Who there's owns some, it, right? Because somebody owns it. Yeah. Well, yes, because I guess back in like the doctor who did the autopsy on Napoleon Bonaparte in the 1800s took his, like stole his penis, which is just why. Okay. Anyways, the story goes that his penis was cut off by the doctor and uh, eventually making its way to Manhattan in 1927. Um, And then somebody bought his penis, like a urologist and kept it under their bed until they died. And then it was, uh, you know, sold for like a hundred thousand dollars. And apparently, only a hundred thousand dollars. No, but it was like a piece of leather, you know, because nobody, because they didn't like keep it. Was it authenticated? Is what I'd like to know. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't, and not everywhere where I was searching, it's kind of like this alleged thing happened. You know what? That actually reminds me. Did you watch Succession at all? Oh no. Well, I watched the first episode, two episodes, and then I was like, "This is intense for me." I know. Just because I think there's an episode where the first son of the main, the main, the patriarch of the family, but it's from a different uh, mother than all of the other siblings. Uh-huh. It's Cameron from Ferris Bueller again. Oh, yeah. Because apparently I just love him. But <laughs> there's an episode where he, because, you know, they're bajillionaires, he buys Napoleon's penis and he has it, like, prominently displayed in his living room or whatever. Well, there you go. That's the thing. That's one of it. So, I mean, you know. It's a story for sure that's out there. So sorry that I just wanted to catch catch y'all up on her blogging and interests. That's absolutely. And so now, take us to right before to well take us to take us there. I'm gonna let you take us all the way to her. Okay. Oh my God. Okay. Great. So, um, so they're in their apartment. Oh my God. Okay. So I get to do. Okay. Great. Thanks everybody. I'm really. She's doing. She's doing part of the crime, you guys. Okay, so Teresa Duncan, 40 years old. It's July 10th, a beautiful summer day in New York City. So just about Um, a week after that fundraiser. Yep, just a week after that fundraiser. She goes into her apartment. She has, apparently there had been signs from other friends that both her and Jeremy had been drinking a lot. They could tell, they could like see it on their faces. They could see their haggard looks. Um, And I guess... I don't know. Should we go back? I, I was the thing about the Scientology thing and their crazy, um, you know, paranoia around it. Apparently, that the script she wrote, she kept saying, "Oh, I have, a, I have a rock star attached. I have a rock star attached," and it was Beck. And right. Beck was like, later on, was like, kind of denied knowing who she was. But there are pictures of him, uh, Jeremy, Teresa, and his wife pregnant at the time, so they were right. friends. But right. He, after the baby was born or right around then before the baby, he told her, I don't, I'm, I can't, I I don't want to be an actor right now. And right. So he backed out and that kind of, and so the thing is, is Beck is a Scientologist. And so that's where she believed that Scientologists were trying to bring her down. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's no evidence. I love, I love, you know, I love a cult guys, but there's no real evidence of anybody trying to back them down and, and them getting kicked out of their LA apartment or their LA, they had a bungalow and apparently the bungalow on side on one side and the other side were like, these people are fucking crazy. Like she was clearly having some psychiatric, you know, Episode. breaks episodes. And I guess, you know, closer to when she was, before she did this, she was like having tremors and kind of like, so, like twitching and all kinds of things. 
Jeremy's worried, I guess, about her, but is believes that she's fine, you know? And um, wants to protect her. They say um, that yeah. they really, you know, they like were deeply, madly in love with each other, even all, all these years later after being together. And he always just wanted to make sure she felt safe and protected. He believed what she said. They kind yeah. of fed into each other. Right. And so, he, was, he was five years younger than her. So imagine 12 years before she was 28 and he was 23. 23. So like kind of grew up with her and love they loved each other so hard um but she comes home one afternoon and mixes benadryl mixes uh, tylenol pm and alcohol and does not wake up ever again right and leaves a note that says i love you all that's it and that's all but it was it was ruled a suicide, obviously. Um, and yeah, right. The toxicology report, um, it was, a, it was suicide, de- suicide by intoxication of diphenhydramine found in Benadryl, Tylenol, PM, and alcohol. Yeah. So the night that Teresa did this, Jeremy had gone out to dinner with two or three other guys, they were talking about a film project because they were still very much in that world trying to make things happen. Uh, people say it was a really good dinner. It was lots of like high-fiving and like, we're gonna get this fucking oh, right. movie going on. <laughs> and he came home and saw, uh, sorry, Father Frank Morales in the garden. They said, hello. He mentioned having him come up to like have a nightcap and hang out. Uh. And, um, and then Jeremy went upstairs and then Father Frank was about to go up and join them when he noticed several paramedics at that like 11th street, yeah. if you know the church at all, the 11th street entrance of the church. And um, when he ran upstairs, Jeremy was literally screaming and beating the walls and sobbing and was inconsolable mm-hmm. and was absolutely devastated. And basically from that point on, his close friends and family kind of put him on suicide watch. That's right. That's right. They said, you know, yeah, a, psychi- a psychiatrist friend was like, felt like he was at great risk of a suicide and they organized a watch, which is kind of. Yeah. I mean, which tells you how serious it was and also <laughs> yeah. how intense their, their love and their, yeah. you know. And he was shocked. Like, yeah, he part, was. B- before we read about the whole, you know, story, I was like, maybe it was like a planned suicide, you know, like she, mm-hmm. she, everything you read about her, she's very like motivated, you know, doing her thing. And everything we read is he seemed completely shocked or he was like, she seemed okay. She seemed better. She seemed fine. I didn't think that, that I didn't see this coming. And so I'll take you guys a little bit now down, down through the life of uh, Jeremy Blake, who was an American digital artist uh, digital projection was his art form. And he was born on October 4th in 1971. His parents are Anne and Jeffrey. And he was born in Oklahoma when he was 17 years old. His dad passed away from AIDS. Um, and then he made his way eventually to New York City, where he met Teresa and got involved in the art world. And he was kind of a rising star. He had done a couple of things that were, I think, kind of a big deal. So another Beck connection, which is how she knew Beck and introduced him to the film, is that Beck used some of uh, Jeremy's art on his uh, album Sea Change. Mm, Yeah. And then another um, Hollywood connection 
that he had was um, in Paul Thomas Anderson's movie, Punch Drunk Love, there is this kind of trippy, abstract, like LSD inspired scene. And that entire scene was created by Jeremy Blake. Wow. Incidentally, both of those two artists are named in the 27 page affidavit that they never actually filed the lawsuit, but both Beck and Paul Thomas Anderson are specifically named in what was going to be their lawsuit against the Church of Scientology, along with Tom Cruise, who they say um, got Paramount to back out of making the movie. None of this, again, has been ever like confirmed, founded. Every, yeah, Teresa's oh. movie, that Tom Cruise was directly responsible for having Paramount pull out of making the movie. They say that it was, it was budget concerns, and at the time, it just wasn't a good time to make this film. Um, none of this is founded at all, but there have been over, over the years, since its inception, a lot of people that say that Scientology um, gets dirt on its members to keep them in line when they get, um, what's that called, Lonnie? You watch the documentary where they have to tell them like a bunch of stuff. Oh, um, it's all recorded. It's like, it's like, it's like, oh God, it's like readings or something. It's like- Audit. Audit, thank you. That's it, sorry. So they, get your they audit. audit people and they basically get like all of your worst fears the worst things you've ever done because that's how you're going to cleanse yourself. Yeah, you have to but do they, it. But they hold on to all of that. And then there are there is a conspiracy that in the 1980s, L. Ron Hubbard's wife, along with several other members of the, the Church of Scientology, were arrested for like wiretapping and spying on a bunch of government agencies trying to get dirt on them. And so yeah. while none of the, the things that uh, Teresa and Jeremy claimed have any, there is no proof. There right. is nothing to suggest that it was anything more than paranoia except for the looming understanding that the church of scientology is capable of doing everything that they said doesn't mean they did but they're capable right. and have been accused of similar things in the past but it so, seems like they were never involved with scientology that's why i don't get it well yeah. it really was because of they were living in hollywood they're trying to get this movie made they had um i think paul thomas anderson at one point had like a girlfriend who, oh no, that's not who it was. It was the guy, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. It's like Schley, oh, yeah. who did um, Dogtown and Swingers. That's right, that the was, producer. That was the next door neighbor, their next door neighbor from the bungalow they were thrown out of. And he had been originally attached to help with the project. And as it fell apart, yeah, they started saying that they were being, they were sabotaging them. Like they got involved, became their friends, tried to get involved with the movie just to then squash it again why i there's no real motive i mean are listen even, oh, it's just delusions and, and paranoia in my opinion i think so too i but mean as somebody who's worked see, in the indie world right. in our you know my younger days it's like it i can't tell you the amount of times my husband who had an independent film company like where something was gonna go and then didn't go and then eight years later they're like okay it's gonna go it's just it's not, it's not a sure, sure biz, you know what and I mean? And it's not an easy biz, you know, mm. to find success, to even be given opportunities. How stressful for that, it's, for it's her. It's hard. Sure. So I think that there was definitely some kind of mental break or something, mm -hmm. you know, that maybe she didn't know that she had like an, uh, maybe she was manic depressive or something that hadn't fully manifested it itself. That's what I'm thinking. And then because of the nature of their relationship and how wrapped up they, this is all speculation, you guys, I'm not a psychiatrist, yeah, a psychiatrist, yeah, 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 yeah. a psychologist, or even somebody who knows anything about this, but it seems like they shared everything. So when right. she started to believe all of this, 
he shared that belief with her. Right. And um, they were just really wrapped up in each other. So where was I? So, oh, for his artwork, um, his most or his best known work was called the Winchester Video Trilogy, which um, was shown at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art in 2005. And it was a three-part video, digital art video uh-huh. thing about Sarah Winchester and the Winchester House. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with that story, but Sarah Winchester was the heiress to the Winchester rifle or assault rifle or whatever that kind of gun is. The Winchester, it's an older one, but it was definitely not like, it was one that could kill a lot of people. And it did. And it is said that after the loss of her husband and her infant daughter, uh, she went mad with grief and a medium that she went to told her that she needed to go to California and build on a giant house with all uh, enough rooms and places for all of the spirits of all of the people who had ever been killed by the gun that her family made. And she went batshit. I mean, she spent her whole life in this house, just building on it and building on it and building on it. And in the end, there's something like 10,000 windows, 400 and some odd rooms, 95 staircases. Some of them didn't even go anywhere. And she was just building on it. And he was fascinated by this woman and by this story. And I think that the fact that he would have such a fascination by a woman who, who was kind of mentally unraveling mm-hmm. and had like delusions and saw things. And I, I think that's kind of telling. And that was his most famous work right. and uh, something he was very fascinated by. He said that he thought the house was interesting because it was an actual, it was a tangible manifestation of this woman's grief, her paranoia, and her delusions and um, like false beliefs that if she could just keep building spaces for these spirits, they would stop haunting her because her family had built um, a weapon that killed so many people. And that was the kind of art that he did. And so, as I mentioned, now coming back to July 10th, when he came home from dinner and found Teresa, um, and who was inconsolable, they, all the accounts say that he just kind of like barely operated on any level. Right. For the following week, he was watched, like we said, round the clock because people were afraid he was going to hurt himself. And then about, you know, let's see, it was the 10th. So I think like maybe five, six days later, he seemed to be feeling a little bit better, doing a little bit better on July 17th, which would have been so seven days after uh, the suicide of, Teresa Duncan, he told friends that he wanted to go back to work. He was feeling okay. And that he would see them all later that night. Cause you know, they were watching him and bringing him food and he went to work and reached out to um, a friend of his in Brooklyn, who I think was like a sound engineer and said, um, I think I'm going to come out and see you because I was already planning on going out to Brooklyn, but he never showed up to his friend's house. And then around 8 PM on the night of July 17th, an anonymous or an un identified female called 911 and said that she had seen a man walk naked on uh, uh, off of Far Rockaway Beach into the ocean and that she was worried about that because, you know. Right. That's seem fun. Seems like not a normal thing. And so police go out and on the beach, they find um, all of his clothes, his wallet, and then a bus- on the back of a business card, all he had written, which he had left on top of his stuff, uh, was a note that said, I'm going to join the lovely Teresa. Mm. And the police 
searched everywhere. There was small hope that maybe he had actually, it was like a setup, like a, like faking his own death again from the paranoia because his passport was, they couldn't find his passport and he had purchased a plane ticket to Germany. But then Mm -hmm. five days later, a fisherman did find his body floating in the water and he went and joined his lovely Teresa. Yeah. And so it's just such a sad story because it's, it's one that you can, it, it got the attention of, you know, big time newspapers like Vanity Fair writing Mm -hmm. huge long articles. Oh, and I guess I should mention that the connection of the author of this article is that she was actually married to Father Frank Morales, which now that I'm saying that, I'm like, how did you marry a priest? Well, she's an Episcopal, he's an Episcopal priest. Okay, so so it's different. So they were married from 2004 to 2006. So they they were no longer married when he met the couple, but it was only a few short months, I think, after they split up that he met them. Yeah. So I think that that connection to her when she heard this, when she was told the story by her, her ex-husband, um, you know, and they were well known. They were successful. They were gorgeous. Yeah. They were the manic pixie dream couple of all the movies about what it was to be like genuinely cool, genuinely yeah. talented and creative. And like all the, th- like you said, that any 20 year old would look at that and be like, that's who I want to be when I grow yeah, up. Yeah, for sure. And um, that's what made it so tragic that, for no apparent reason that anybody can cite, mm-hmm. they just started to slowly go mad and took their lives. Yeah, it's it's really sad. You know, I think about I think about um, suicide, and you know how many people, sadly, we've known who've done it or who've considered it, and it's just like this seems like. I don't know. It's just hard to explain to understand why, because they were around each other all the time. You think, you know, he would have seen the signs or maybe he was just protecting her the whole time. And maybe he knew that she had this undercurrent, but maybe not. I don't know. Cause it seems like such a, how would you, I feel like you would know, right? I mean, I feel like it's hard to say that. I mean, in either way, it's hard to say if you would know, or if you wouldn't know they, one thing that I did forget to mention, I guess is after, the initial shock of her death wore off and he was constantly being monitored and surrounded by people. Mm-hmm. A, f- a few days before he took his own life, he kind of like sat up and said, I get it. She won. Like she got to choose, I think in her own delusion of someone tr- of an entity or of individuals or a group of a collective trying to destroy her and mm-hmm. take her life from her that she beat them to, she beat them at their own game and she did it first. I don't necessarily think that that is true, but that seems to be like what he, how he was able to reconcile that decision that did seem to catch him off, like so off guard. But it's just one of those stories that it does make you wonder, you know, I mean, I think the more important conversation, honestly, to have here is how important it is to open up a, a, a safe space in this whole world to talk about mental health and mental illness and how yeah. it's the same as any physical Absolutely. illness a person can have. So to go from being wildly successful, top of your field, like superstar and smart and yeah. happy and for everything, you know, just a few, like couple, a couple of professional setbacks don't usually lead people down such a like a drastic downfall into this mm-hmm. weird place that's kind of inexplicable and doesn't make any actual sense in reality 
And I think that it's one of those things where like people don't talk about mental illness enough. I think we're way better. Right. Like, Compared to 2007 to now. Yeah. Like 13 years ago. And then yeah. if that's now you can get it online, some yeah. mental health. Thank goodness, because we're not allowed to leave our houses. Yeah, I know. I mean, teletherapy at this point is it's that's, crucial that it exists yeah. like, that it exists for people's survival. But I do think that the conversation that you know that that we just all need to feel comfortable having, which is that there is not a person who walks the planet that does not have or will have at some point some mental health issues because that right. is part of existing. And it's okay. Yeah. And there's it's, no, that's totally okay. There's no shame in it, yeah. but the stigma around it for so long, I feel like has been so large that it's only really as of late. And I think even back in 2007, you know, people thought that something seemed off with them, but nobody ever says the words. Mm-hmm. I think maybe she, you know, was mentally ill or like maybe she had undiagnosed bipolar disorder or I don't know. I'm not, like I said, I'm not a psychologist, but I just, to me, that's what's so sad. How two such seemingly successful, clearly together with it, people to find that success. So in love had everything going for them. And then this happens. So sad. And then I guess, um, uh, Brett, Brett Easton Ellis, bought the rights for this article or whatever, The Golden mm-hmm. Suicides, and he's been trying to make the movie for like 10 years or so or more, yeah. And I'm kind of like, I don't know, man, just fucking lay off. I don't know. I, that well, guy, is, he's not my favorite. Like, he's the guy who did, um, oh, God, Psycho. No, not Psycho. What's the one with American the, Psycho? American Psycho, yeah. And then yeah. he's written a bunch of books, and all the books I've read of his, it's like all so dark and fucked up. Right. So not surprising that this story yeah, is resonated. as appealing yeah. or compelling to him. Here's what I'll say to that effect. Um, if the movie ever gets made, then I think if there is a, a heaven or a, another place you go when you die, Teresa would, would love that. That's true. To be the star of, of a movie. To, or, or, you know, like we said, fame. That her story would have resonated enough to be made into a movie, which is something that she wanted to make not her story, but to make a movie so badly and to be part of that world. Part of me feels like that would be some sort of indication for her. I love that. Okay. Thank you. Fine. Go ahead and make that movie, buddy. I'm going the ROM this time. No, I like it. But I just, cause like some of his books I've read, they're so, they make you feel so yucky. Yeah. Um, I'm not terribly familiar with his work. Obviously I've seen American Psycho, but I feel like beyond that, I couldn't, I don't know anything. There's a couple others I've read. I can't remember the names right now, but I just hope if he does ever make this movie, I guess Gus Van Sant was part of it for a while, which I'm like, oof, it's not going to be a rom, rom-com. Uh, but Gus Van Sant has like bowed out since then. But right, which point is, like, is. probably why it's not been made. But yeah. that is the, Golden the, the incredibly sad story yeah. of Teresa Duncan and Jeremy Blake who, who, you know, shared their love and then ultimately lost their lives at a place that I know has so much meaning to so many people and so much history. And when Shane recommended the story to us, yeah, he even said to me, you know, I, the very first play I ever saw you in was here. And I was so excited because I, I knew of the church from this story. Really? Yeah. So he was like, I had never had, you know, I'd never been there. I'd never had any reason to go there. Did and he then, work for Vanity Fair? 
You know, I don't know. He definitely might have. Yeah. So he's the rock star and he's worked for all the big deal magazines. So he, <laughs> he probably did. But, um, but you know, it's one of those things where this is now woven into the fabric of that place. Yeah. And um, all of the ghosts that haunt that, that beautiful magical space in New York city, mm-hmm. you know, got two more after this one, but what a, what a sad story. I don't know. This one is just hard because there's no real, there's no real explanation that we, that anyone can give anyone other right. than, you know, I think it makes a, a little bit more sense that we have talked on the show before about dying of a broken heart. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, and to a degree you could say that, you know, he just didn't want to go on without her. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably it, you know, for yeah. sure. And, I, and again, I think that a, sh- a shared delusion right. can, can have all kinds of effects on people. And so with, you know, if she, if this was the route that she took. Yeah. I thought about that. You know, then, then he was like, then I meant to join her Yeah, because we do, we do this together, you know? Crazy. So sad. So there was yeah. a nice uplifting yeah. For thanks, thanks for listening, everyone. On this, during uh, these super light and fuzzy times we're living in. But yeah, thank you guys for listening. Yeah. Again, as we mentioned before, we love suggestions. So uh, if anybody knows of any kind of, um, I don't know, quarantine rom-crime or Ooh, pandemic related rom-crime. Like DM us, any, buddies. Facebook, right, any, Insta. <laughs> Twitter. Twitter, Insta, Facebook. Does anybody Mom ever call it podcast. Twitter? Like, what? Because it's Insta. Twitter. It should be Twitter. I think it's Twitter. Yeah. But thank you guys for listening. Yep. And I'm going to say this, even though we haven't in a while, because it's a weird time and I Do think it. people's regular schedules are off. So there's not yeah. like a commute where you listen to stuff. But we love making this show so very much. So if we you do. haven't yet, pretty please rate, review, subscribe. Just click five stars and then write love you guys or, yeah. or don't, or right. Click one star and say, stop already, whatever you want to do. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, if you wouldn't mind doing that, it, it helps us out immensely. Tremendously. Bye. And join our everybody. Facebook group. Bonnie made yes. Oh, I made a group. If you want to talk, let's get down. Who wants to hear us talk about the tiger King? Oh, done. Let's do it. Oh. Mm-hmm.